This is about all those moments that make up the rich tapestry of our lives, and these are my moments. Moments. Once my life was measured in school days, garden plays, hours of rain and sun, summer evenings, walks in the lanes, the number of blackberries found, flowers picked and daisy chains, the tall trees climbed, the ropes we skipped, winters born, the snowmen built, the many bright lights on the tree. Then my life was measured in bomb blasts and splintered glass, guns on the streets and riots in the square, beautiful buildings no longer there, burning buses and rubber bullets, the crack of the armalite, the roll of the tanks, the strangers in masks who hid in the dark, evil intent on their minds, the close shaves, the near misses and the damage done, the dark days, the years of tears and the old times gone. My life was counted out in study hours, books devoured, exams I sat. The successes and fails, the joys and despairs, the fresh starts and the working years. My life has been measured out in miles, travelled away from the place of my birth. South, east, west and north. The bids to escape and the deep pull of home. The strolls on the beach and the rolling green hills. The songs in the pub and the fiddler's trills the shaking of hands and the smiles all around. The times I felt lost and the ways I've been found. My life now is measured in friends old and new, the stories they tell and the words on the page, the cosy chats in the coffee shop, the slices of cake and the sips of sweet tea, laughter and sadness and love in between. My life is measured in moments like this, the light and the shade and the times yet unseen. Eagle Song was written and is narrated by Jean Fairburn. Enjoy. Eagle Song I ride the air and hang motionless above my desert land, a kingdom bound by endless sky, food beneath picked out as I fly, from reptiles basking on rocks below, lizards and chameleons who change and grow and match the colours of sand formations, nature's way of separating nations, with kaleidoscopic colours and hues, beiges and browns, greens and blues, and canyon cliffs in horizontal stripes, sandwiched in layers of orange and white. At dawn a shaman beats his drum, and summons up the new day sun, slow steps in circles round and round, wakes his tribe with rhythmic sound, to tell my story in dance, not words, for I am eagle and king of birds, who follows the dance by beating my wings, and when I take flight, the canyon sings. Child S. Written and narrated by Evie Coppard. Question. What are the elemental ingredients of a human being? Answer. 59% hydrogen, 24% oxygen, 11% carbon, 4% nitrogen, and a 2% mix of phosphorus, sulphur, etc. Propped up by pillows, the judgment delivered. We look at the website one more time. What do you think etc. is? I shrug. No idea. I think it's hope and fairy dust. 
Behind the oxygen mask, the corners of your mouth lift, showing the dimple in your cheek. I try to smile. I know how much you want my approval, but silent complicity is the best I can offer. You feel my doubt, and I hate myself. Sun streams in through the window, but your bed is in the shadow of the machinery. You can't see the sky, or the cherry tree in full blossom. I stroke your pink hair off your face. Your hand meets mine. Do you remember the row we had the day you dyed your hair? Yes, you were furious. I was, but I was wrong. It suits you. You pull at the mask. You have something important to say. Mum, I want... But the effort is too much and you drift away. The pump on the machine rises and falls. The nebulizer whispers. Lullaby rhythms, the warm room make me yawn. Hours later, I am woken by the alien noise that comes from your throat. Angela the Vigilant is at the bedside. Gently, she checks you over, makes a note, presses the little pump attached to your hand. It's nearly time. Angela touches my shoulder. There are tears in her eyes. Are you ready? No, not ready. I was never ready. Not even when I finally agreed to support this madness. I thought, I knew, the court would intervene to stop it. Angela offers me a glass of water. Lukewarm, it needs ice. I laugh at the irony. Angela looks concerned. Are you ready? Her tone is urgent now. I nod and she leaves. This is our last few minutes. Gently, I squeeze your hand. You do not squeeze back. Across the corridor, in a room grudgingly assigned by the hospital, who fought the judgment and lost, the team prepares. Their vehicle, bearing the same logo as their polo shirts, waits by the back entrance. There will be minimum fuss at the airport. The big yellow sticker on your paperwork calls you special cargo. As soon as your pulse stops, I must let go of your hand immediately. They were very clear about that. They will be working against the clock and I mustn't get in the way. I can watch from the corridor if I wish, but I must not get in the way. First, the technicians will inject you with chemicals to stop your blood clotting. They will lift you, still warm, into the freezing casket and you will disappear under ice packs. A device will keep your brain oxygenated until procedures are complete. Your vivid, unruly hair, the dusting of freckles across your nose, the defiant red fingernails, the appendix scar, all will be invisible under the ice. I never lied to you, and you didn't ask, so you don't know that I spent everything we have to get to this point. My journey ends at the airport. You must continue alone in the dark hold of a cargo plane, a vapour trail cutting through the sky and then nothing. At the facility, they will drain all your blood and replace it with antifreeze to protect your organs and stop rogue ice crystals shattering your cells. You'll be wrapped inside an arctic sleeping bag to protect your skin and slowly frozen to minus 130 centigrade. Once vitrified, men in overalls will strap you to a board and lower you headfirst into the nitrogen tank. 
your fragile body and beautiful brain will lie suspended, unaware, at a freezing minus 196 degrees in elemental darkness. You know all this. The judge came to your bedside, explained the risks, the near impossibility of success, the terror and loneliness you'll face, even if the miracle happens. He didn't cry and plead as I did. He made you think about being human, about the soul, memory, personality, all things that may perish or be changed utterly. He stressed that nobody knows. You listened to his arguments more intently than you ever listened to mine, but you were unswayed and unafraid. You convinced him at 14 years old that you were competent to make such a decision. Since then, we've shared over and over the memories you hope to keep safe in the ice. Days by the river, fingers trailing through the water with the sun warm on your back. My voice calling you in across darkening fields. Nights camping out in the garden with friends. Christmases, holidays, birthday parties. Your first date before diagnosis drained all possibility. Your paintings hang in the school foyer above the vigil candle. They will be taken down after the memorial service. Will the creative passion that produced them survive? What about the nightmares? Your fear of wasps? The homesickness that blighted school trips and visits to your father? Will these terrors stay with you? Who will comfort you? You were always restless. Impatient even as a toddler to wriggle away from my arms and explore the world. For 14 years, you were constantly on the move. You never learned the art of patience. But there is a lot of waiting ahead. You are counting on the alchemy of hope and fairy dust to bring you back to life. You believe you can present yourself healed and fresh without friend or family to a new world. You cannot even imagine what that world will be like. But I hope it is kind to you, my darling. And I hope you carry always the memory of love and the knowledge of what that means. The Towpath After the Rain was written by Sally Ronham is narrated by Colette Parker and edited by Sue Rodwell-Smith. Roses and Castles, canal artwork, decorates crockery and utensils aboard this former working narrowboat as we sail along the Bridgewater Canal south of Warrington. I carry flowers. Roses were not available for sale at Walton Gardens Quay. Our chateau in France, with swimming pool and therapy complex, basks in the Mediterranean sunshine. That is my castle now. This summer, I am touring parts of northwest England with my teenage grandchildren, showing them my childhood haunts. Today, I tell them a little of someone from long ago who fell beneath the water's surface. My memories heighten our shared enjoyment of fleeting moments on this balmy day, gliding through clear water with myriad fish darting around plants rooted in the canal bed. Swans nest in reed beds, 
protected by local conservators. And a heron launches from her resting spot, long legs, a trailing mantle. Earlier, a kingfisher was spotted on a shrub, protruding from a sandy bank, poising to collect his breakfast. Electric boats like this updated relic from the glory days of canal transport are helping to reduce pollution. I break off petals of pink and yellow Alstromeria, Indian summer, and sprinkle them above the water at the exact spot between Grappen Hall and Appleton that transformed my life. On school days, milling around the tuck shop, Robert Evans hissed, Fetch me tuppence tomorrow or else. Or, you'd better get money for tuck or watch out. And, I've seen you walk home alone. What would this pittance buy? A jammy dodger or a pink and yellow wafer biscuit? Huge treats for post-war children on healthy but meagre diets. Pinching, prodding and tripping... My oppressor would threaten if I failed to deliver next day. Sometimes I had to steal pennies from relatives and was finally admonished by my grandfather. Ashamed even to this day to hear, You can always ask Nan or I for money. Never just take it without permission. Not a single penny. I never stole anything again. Sadly, I had not felt able to confide in Grandad about this persistent bully. Lying awake, I worried about the outcome next day of having no tuck shop money. I never dared test whether threats made by my tormentor would manifest as actions. The day my waking nightmares ended, the school had just sung Percy Deemer's hymn, God is Love. His the care. School be seated, head teacher Miss Braithwaite commanded us all. Pay attention to my announcement. I'm sorry to have to tell you that Robert Evans, from Mrs Oxley's class, died suddenly yesterday. Bow your heads and let us pray for him and for his parents. The relief. Did night-time fretting count as prayers? My friend Anne shared her pennyworth of broken biscuits in the calmest break time for ages. Cycling too fast along the slippery towpath, my parents explained in their cautionary way the article in the Warrington Guardian that week. My confidence grew undaunted by primary lessons in wrapping calves with a 12-inch ruler, caning soft palms and even banishment to a supplies cupboard for being unable to answer something yet to be taught. Taunting by groups of girls or jostling by older boys was commonplace at secondary school. There was even an harassment incident, but classmates said that was targeted at Jolanta and indeed never investigated. On to university and into financial wizardry, earning a good living and never having to steal money. Not illegally, anyway. I pluck a few petals and let them fall towards the water's surface, 
and swirl around in the swell from the boat's propeller. I had thought of laying a wreath along the towpath, but did not want to leave an imprint on what was now a foreign land. Lightweight petals drift lackadaisically, buffeted by a slight breeze, but gravity pulls them ever downwards. Below the surface, the young cyclist had fallen and drowned. Even though there was only about six foot, roughly two metres of water. Following Robert Evans's tragic and untimely death, this seven-year-old flourished without guilt at prayers. Now, though, as a parent, I think of those who grieved for their only child and consider a what-if-it-had-not-happened scenario. Would he have carried on bullying? Would I have continued to lose confidence? Been unable to have a loving relationship as I grew up, as is the case for some abused as children? Indeed, could I have gone under instead? Puddles of water still sit on the muddy tow bath reminding me that one slip. I still remember the last verse of Percy Deamer's hymn. Pattern for our duty, showing God in beauty. As my eldest grandchild has a go at painting roses and castles on a watering can and think that even the darkest depths beneath become quite shallow to those who learn to swim. Why Spring Flowers Dance, written and narrated by Jean Fairburn and edited by Sue Rodwell-Smith. Snow white and petals packed tightly together, centres curled inwards like babies' closed fists. In spring's warmer weather, they wake and dance measures and cling to their neighbours to beg for the favour of dancing gay gardens for fun. Stems locked together as one, sweeping and swaying, swirling and twirling, dancing and spinning around roots stuck fast in the ground whirls and crowns circlets and cohorts of colour flowers in yellow pink violet and blue squashed tightly they jostle stretch sideways they squabble struggle for more space to be first to turn full face to dawn's eastern skyline announcing it's springtime when warm rays of sunlight drive winter to full flight herald a spring prayer and trumpet a fanfare for flowers who dance in the sun celebrating the race they have won pity blooms wilted and crushed flat stems broken shredded and snapped who lie in spent pollen and die on compost heaps covered with flies casualties of life's cruel race to first feel the sun on their face red patterned bloodstains scar concrete grey pathways in fume-laden cities and rough neighbourhoods hear flowers perfume stale air and dance to give back the colour and form The tale you're about to hear is called Come Back Little Sister, Come Back was written by Sonia Kurt and is narrated by Colette Parker Do enjoy Dust to dust, 
ashes to ashes, said the undertaker in his terse but kindly manner. Leaning towards me, his head poked out above a starched collar, several sizes too big, exposing his scrawny neck. He looked like a vulture. Shall we arrange to scatter the ashes in the rose garden? He asked. That would be nice. You liked roses, didn't you, dear sister? I wish you were still alive to enjoy their scent and beauty. One of few pleasures after that tragic accident. And now only ashes remain. Few people were at the funeral, but that's only to be expected. Let's face it, we were just two old single women. You, paralysed from youth and somewhat reclusive, and me, I'd quashed all ambition to look after you. Hardly a scintillating duo. Our cousin Peter approached with his supercilious wife, Angela. How lucky poor Dorothy was to have you to look after her, she'd said. Yes, you were, weren't you? I'd retorted, thinking of Angela and Peter's family and interesting careers. There'll be nobody to look after me if I'm ever ill, will there? Sometimes I think I'd like to finish it all now, if I could. But I'm even more afraid of dying than I am of living. Angela had prattled on. How different it would have been if she hadn't had that dreadful accident. Obviously, I thought. I would at least have had a niece or a nephew, if not children of my own. Quite likely I would have married John. He wanted me to meet his parents. But I said I couldn't leave you. In the end, he gave up asking me out. At last, the funeral's over. I'm left wandering around the house, every corner filled with reminders of you. Here are your glasses, and there's your wheelchair. I can't believe you'll never use them again, nor that you will never again need me. I always helped you. I was so proud to have a baby sister. You toddled around after me and I could help you dress and do up those pesky shoelaces. Gradually, though, I noticed things that began to niggle. It wasn't just appearances, although we hardly looked like sisters. You had golden curly hair. Mine looked like hay. You had bright blue eyes. Mine were hidden behind glasses. When Mother made a dress for you, everyone said, Doesn't she look sweet? When she made one for me, people sighed and looked away. You were so much better than me at school. If I had focused, I could have done well. But finding it boring, I wandered off into a dream world. You were like a young puppy, eager to please and lapped up everything. Being much better at sports than me, you became more popular. Then there were the ponies. 
dear Patsy, nearly as wide as she was high. Even I learnt to ride on her. A bit later came Ben, bomb-proof and capable, and you started to win at local Gymkhana's. Miss Bailey said you were ready for something with a bit more class, so Daddy brought Rocket. I dare not mount him, but you and Rocket collected rosettes from all around the county. Then on to the bigger national events, where just looking at the jumps made me quiver. And so we came to that fateful day. It was windy, which unsettled the horses. You had had a clear round so far. But as you approached the second to last jump, something frightened Rocket. Witnesses said a paper bag blew in front of your horse. He suddenly reared and swerved. Normally you would have recovered and got him collected again but the saddle slipped and you crashed against the fence. Worse still, Rocket fell on top of you. Limp as a rag doll, you were carried off on a stretcher. I couldn't believe it when they said you would never walk again. Everyone wanted to know how you could have forgotten to tighten the girths, how someone with your experience could be so careless. Well, my dear, you had not forgotten. I was standing near and saw you pull up the girths. Then you spotted Miss Bailey and you wanted to ask her how to approach one particularly tricky jump. You thrust the reins into my hand, barking, hold him for me, and dashed off. It was then that the worm turned. Resentment built up over years erupted in a surge of malice. How dare she treat me like her servant, I reasoned. I'll make her look foolish in front of all those people. So I loosened the girths. Almost immediately I wished I hadn't, but it was too late. You came dashing back. I'm next, you gasped, grabbed the reins vaulted up onto the saddle and charged off to the collecting ring. My cautionary words blew away in the wind. Nobody knew. No one even suspected. It's why I'm terrified of dying, of the truth finally being revealed. I have a recurring nightmare about meeting you and others we know who've gone before. I hear you all murmuring together. Then you, Dorothy, turn to facing, with eyes filled with loathing. As I reach out to try to touch you, you shrink from me and fade away. I am left alone forever. <laughs>